You're listening to a Hebrew in Israel podcast with Yoel HaLevi, exploring the language, culture, and history of the Bible. For more information, visit us at HebrewInIsrael.net. Okay, Barakim Ben Ibrahim, everybody, we're so happy you're with us again for another of our weekly uh, uh, discussions around the roundtable with Yoel Halavi and myself, Jeff Gilbert. And I'd like to add that uh, this is now um, uh, one step closer to Professor Halavi, uh, who's uh, 97 on his Hebrew. Um, uh, what was the actual? Hey, don't, don't 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 give my grades away. Oh well, hey, 97, man, come on. Are you shame it's not a hundred? Oh, please. Um, kind of. You hit the bullseye. You, hit the bullseye. you want to hit the no, center no, of the bullseye? No, no, no. I'm, I'm thinking of redo- t- retaking the exam. Ah. Uh, well, I think it's wonderful you got a 97. Congratulations. Hallelujah. Mazel tov. Uh, yeah, it's it basically I decided to, though, though this is material that I, I teach on a daily basis, I decided that I really need on paper that yeah, I have. Formalize uh, yourself. Formalizing, have on paper that I actually have quali- uh, uh, an academic qualification in, in biblical Hebrew. Yeah. So I took a cl- class that's known as classical Hebrew. Here in Israel, that class is uh, de- deals with you know, it's we don't take for example like an intro to Hebrew and all that. It's basically one class that you take uh, because we're all Hebrew speakers. It goes way faster for us. Uh, so they focus on theoretical history of, of biblical Hebrew. Uh, you know, proto-Semitic, uh, calligraphy. <clears throat> Actually, for one of the papers that I wrote, I had to write out several verses from the Tanakh uh, in uh, Paleo-Hebrew. That was fun. Um, <clears throat> excuse me? <clears throat> okay, sorry. And, uh, you know, and actually the funny thing is I got on all my papers, I got 100. And then on the exam, I made a judgment call and I know exactly where I lost the points. And when I walked out of the exam, the penny dropped. I gave the I gave the note. The, I gave the, the exam back. You know, this is all. This is uh, all handwritten. This is a. Uh, this is not a um, multiple uh, choice. And you know, I walk out. The, I walk out the, cl- the the classroom. I go down the stairs, and this penny drops in my head that I made a mistake. I'm like walking down the street, going like, "Why, why?" <laughs> people would ask. People would ask. You know, why is it so important to go back and get this formalization? Well, think about it this way, folks. If if you wanted to learn English and you were from another country, would you want to learn from Jed Clampett or would you want to learn from somebody who had gone to school? Uh, you know, just because somebody lives in England uh, in Israel doesn't mean that. You know they're any more knowledgeable than Jed Clampett on 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 Hebrew. Well, now we have somebody that's uh, re, you know re, received formal accreditation and moving onward. So it's wonderful. So hallelujah! Thank you yep. very much for doing yeah. that. Uh-huh. I I know you it didn't was, need it, to, but thank you for doing it. For this, I've I've spent many 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 hours working on biblical Hebrew and stuff like that. And you know I'm I'm using now books which are considered to be you know very very high level. Um, stuff. I mean, I'm going through these books that I use for work, and I, I kind of keep on reading, and I pick up interesting bits and pieces here and there. But what's what's fun about taking a course like this? It gives you certain clarity. First of all, it, pr- it proves that you actually know what you're doing. Someone else actually checked you. Right, right, right. Uh, you know, yeah. I've done it before. I mean, I've 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 spoken with other academics that I know to test what I know, and they all say, "Listen, you know, you all you know this material," but you know, because I deal with this material so much. 
I was, I was like, what? I lost a couple of points. What? No. Yeah, this is impossible. But really, the play, where I lost the, the points, to be frank, it, it was actually very tricky. It wasn't that simple, and I wouldn't be surprised if other people were, would have lost points in the same place as well. Because it's a tricky, it was one of the trickier subjects. So I'm not that concerned about it. But now I can put on my resume, if anyone asks, yes, I actually have academic, uh, uh, Credit and accreditation, yeah. Accreditation, and I actually have a. I got a really, really high grade. All my papers were perfect. My exam, I made just a judgment call, and it was a mistake. But you know, still, you know, that was one thing, and I lost a few points, and that was it. So it's basically, as far as I see, it was perfect. Because when I was done with the exam, I realized where my mistake mistake was. So sure. I'm, I'm well, fine with you that. Well, you well, you were already shiny to us before, so don't worry about it. So listen, listen. <laughs> Let's let let's flex those uh, intellectual muscles that you've just uh, uh, received notoriety for, and we're going to be working in the uh, portion called Ha'azinu. Now Ha'azinu, it's a, it's one literally of the songs. Literally means listen. listen. It actually literally yes. means listen. Ha'azinu, listen. Pay attention. Keep your you know. But if it's from the word ozen, which means ear, it's ah. basically. Use your ear to listen. It's one of those nouns that turns into a verb. One of the interesting functions of uh, of the Hebrew verbal system is you can actually take um, words, put them into the heavy stems, which is a specific stem inside the verbal system, and it can turn it into a verb. So it's very interesting because the word ozen, for example, is uh, you find the same word, for example, in Aramaic, udna. Uh, you can only notice that they are oden, ud, ozen. And then in Aramaic, it receives this udna. And then, for example, in Ugaritic, it's uden. But we don't really have the vowel points for Ugaritic. And uh, what's very, very interesting there is that these are all words which appear this one appear uh, very similar to one another. And um, there's actually a historical connection between Zion and Dalit. Uh, but the very interesting point here is that primitive words are synonymous amongst... Uh, um, not synonymous. Uh, they're, they're basically... Uh, um, mutual in all different languages. So one of the things that Hebrew does with words like that is it, it takes a word like that and actually turns it into a verb, which is which is loads of fun because basically there's a high dynamic in the verbal verbal system in Hebrew. It's really fun because you can bump into these really weird words and they're and they're completely acceptable. And and what's what's really fun is like for example you have Israelis and they they'll they'll think of they think of a word describe what they're doing. <clears throat> and it doesn't just adding an ing like you do in English. You actually make something really complex out of it. So there's a there's a wonderful uh, organization here in Israel. Uh, well, there's some arguments about them, but there's a wonderful. I think they're wonderful. They, they they basically it's the Hebrew Academy, and their job it's like a little building in the Hebrew University, and their job is to come up with Hebrew words. Yeah, and it's lots of fun because they put they put out. For some, they put out, uh, for example, these explanations, how they concluded it should be done like this. And then, if, for example, if you disagree with them and you write to them and explain why you disagree and you, you, you put it down in, based on the rules and they accept it, you've actually given a contribution to the Hebrew language and, and they actually might change based on your argument. Wow. So literally, if, if you're really good, you put a stamp on Hebrew. It's it's pretty cool. It's it's, 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 like, a, it's like wiki it's a, for language in, in, in Israel. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. Exactly, but what they put out officially goes into dictionaries. Yeah, it's wonderful. So, so it's 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 like one of the very. It's the only. I think it's the only body in the world that really continues Hebrew as a living language, but defining Hebrew more and more and more because Hebrew, 
froze at one point, which, by the way, is relevant to our piece here because this is a piece of poetry, and poetry tends to have more archaic language, which makes it sometimes a lot more difficult to right. read. Which is one of the questions uh, I was going to ask. But go ahead and finish your story. But, but what's what's fun about them is that they basically are they're, they're bringing Hebrew into into the into the twenty first century, which is fun, you know. So they 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 for example explain uh, you know. They find a word that up to now there's only a foreign word for it, and they say, "Here's the Hebrew word." It doesn't mean people will actually use it, but it's fun. I, I think I think the exercise itself is loads of fun. Absolutely. Well, you know, there's another word. Um, I want to say it's further down. In let me see if I can get my glasses on so I can read. I want to say it's down in 17, where it describes uh, God by the term Eloah, and that's Eloah. more. Of an, uh, that's more of a an Aramaic and word too, right? Hello, hey, are you there? Did I lose yeah, you? I'm here. Okay. No, no. Uh, I hear oh, you. sorry. Uh, well, I was saying uh, the Eloa. Isn't that an Aramaic word as well? Or no, of, uh, Eloa. Or El- Eloa is just a form of Elohim. Oh, okay. Wonderful. Okay. Well, I was in, I was just under the impression it was somewhat Aramaic of sources. Well, there is Aramaic in this, but Eloa uh, is just um, an, another way of saying Elohim. But it, it it gives a bit of a, a notion of singular. Oh sure, absolutely. You know, the, the, the 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 name Elohim, for example, a lot of people uh, ask about this because the, the word Elohim has what's referred to as a uh, a plural mm-hmm. suffix. Mm-hmm. Can they call it majestic they plural or something like that? No, no, that that's uh, well. Okay, let me break that that one down. So first of all, there's a debate exactly what is the root of the word Elohim. There's there's a there's a whole debate among scholars what exactly is the root, and they've never really concluded that there's one root. <clears throat> they never really stopped and said, okay, that's the root. Now this is a very very old word. This is a what we can refer to as a pure primitive word, and the fact that it appears with a plural suffix. First of all, it doesn't always appear with a plural suffix. For example, if you look at the Ugaritic text, it doesn't appear with a yud mem. It just appears with a mem at the end. So there's some questions of like, was it really pronounced Elohim, or it maybe was pronounced Eloham, or something else. Uh, but in any case, still having that mem, <clears throat> still to some degree makes it uh, plural, unless you can argue that someone misunderstood it, and the mem was what we refer to as an anaclectic mem, which is a mem that's added for some reason that we actually don't know why, but it's added to a word, and therefore it was misunderstood, um, and and people thought that what it was was a pluralization when it was really just a singular. Now, the other side of it is what you mentioned is that it's possible that this is a what's referred to as a pluralization of majesty or honorific plural, is that when you pluralize something, not to pluralize it in the sense of more than one, but in the sense of greatness. Now, it's like, for example, when you like, use the like word... Like all-encompassing? Not all-encompassing. Basically... It's a way of saying almighty of everything or whatever it might be, the most powerful, the greatest of there there is, you put it in a plural. <clears throat> okay, so that that, that you, you can do that. It's not very common. But it might explain why it appears as the word Elohim. And then, for example, if we take that, if you go to Genesis one sorry, Genesis yeah, I think it's one or two. Oh, let us wow. Genesis 2, let us make a man in our form. So people run to that one and say, oh, obviously there's, there's, you know, God is a plural. But then when you look at the, when the action itself happens, it's, uh, it's, it says, and God made. Right, right. Adam. 
So there, the the issue there is is why is he speaking in the plural? It's quite possible that it's the royal we, as a friend of mine sometimes says it. Because if if it were really plural, then the description of the action should be in plural as well. Right. Exactly. For for the for the for the for for the context in general to to make sense, if I'm using plural here, I should use plural there. Unless you want to argue that we're t- dealing with two separate pieces that were glued together from two t- separate sources, mm-hmm. which I highly, which by the way I highly doubt. Well, now in uh, this in, in this chapter, now we're in chapter thirty-two again. It it, it you it's interesting that you bring out the the emphasis of singular there because he talks about his singularity throughout this entire song. You know, he is the rock. And uh, when you look down in verse, I know we're not jumping around a little bit. We look down in verse 15. He says, you know, you have forgotten the rock. You know, you've you've treated like a fool the rock of your deliverance. And, you know, it's it's there's a lot of singularity here. And it's wonderful. Uh, I'm, so I'm glad you brought that out. So what's very, very interesting here, first of all, um, I, I always emphasize the first couple of verses, because this is really a very good canvas to teach poetry uh, from, because it contains a lot of poetic um, concepts and ideas. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm, I'm having some trouble with my throat today, so I'm, I apologize for coughing a lot. <clears throat> there are, so usually when I teach students, I, I use this as a canvas because it really contains a lot of different things. And it's just, it's a fascinating piece. First of all, the fact that it's in poetry. Why poetry? I might have explained this uh, last year, but I'm going to repeat it anyhow. Poetry is a as a mechanism to memorize. There's a beat to it, or you know, there's a rhythm to things. You uh, say. I don't know if we really can call it a canter, but there's there's a, there's it's really refers to as rhythmic. Usually, it's referred to in the, in the works that I read. It says rhythmic. Uh, but there's basically a rhythm. You use a number of, uh, you fill in a number of boxes in each verset. Uh, a, a perfect rhythm is usually 3-3 three, three or 3-4, three, uh, where you have three words, four words, or three words, and three words. This is all structured. By the way, if you look at this from a, a Masoretic text, um, you'll see it's built in two columns. And you actually have to read from the right to the left, right column, left column, right column, left column. Remember the first time I told this to a student, they were reading one column and then tried to read the other column. So, no, 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 you read one side and then you read the other side. That's a structure of poetry. And what's very interesting here is that the rhythm is more or less consistent. Okay, you usually have some like three words per per box. Okay. Even if you have like I'm looking at it in my four words, like for example, if you take the, four, the fourth verse, um, if I divide up into four, so one, two, three, four, bo- uh, one, two, three, four verse sets, and then first verse set has three words, second verse set has four words. However, some of these words are hyphenated or are in the right. construct state, and therefore they're actually read as one word. Their, their, their yeah. accent kind of glues them together to become one word. So, for example, that's one thing I, I, I usually uh, demonstrate in classes. So, so in this in this portion in in this uh, poem, um, it's a very long poem. It's yeah. not a poem. Well, song. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a song. No, it's you have to remember it's not a poem. It's a song. A poem is a couple of lines long. This is a full fledged song with a very complex structure. With obviously very straightforward concepts, but with a very complex structure, with a lot of metaphors, with what's referred to as lead words as well. Rock is one of them, for example. Hatsur, the word appears seven times. There are structures here of numbers. There are 
concepts here, a lot of different things. This is this is actually uh if I if you teach this entire thing from beginning to end, it will take quite a while. Sure, sure. So. Well, let me just let me just do the opening verse real quick uh, because it seems to be the preamble, and he's calling to hear. Well, the pre- pre- the, pream- the preamble is actually the first three verses. Okay, uh, it, it starts off by saying, uh, calling the heavens and calling the earth to to listen to him, to to witness what he's saying. Now. I just wanted to r- remind people that what we've already talked about is that the heavens and the earth are his witnesses to his covenants. And, you know, when we, in, in the beginning of this song, he reminds, the, he calls out the heavens and the earth to, to hear this retelling of the covenant. He's calling into account the people's lack of adherence to the covenant. And he's calling into, uh, he's, he's setting before the, the witnesses, the heavens and the earth, his case against Israel. Uh, this well, is a well, very, very damning, in some ways, uh, song, as far as how God's viewing the people's actions towards him. Go ahead. So, basically, what I said last week was I wanted to actually start from the end of the previous parasha, because he basically tells oh, Moses, yes. you're going to die, and this nation is going to rise and and sin against me. So, he's already telling them the future. He's he's giving a future scenario. If you actually go and do this, this is what's going to happen. So this is why he's told, put it in their mouth. They need to sing this to themselves. They need to remember. Whether it's song, it's not song with a tune like we use today. It's a beat. It's a rhythm. For example, I was studying some of the uh, Ethiopic uh, prayers, the way they do things. And I was going to some, you know, uh, cult, other cultures, the way they do things, and and it's it's more of a rhythm. It's something that you more more like recite than anything else. You know, when I when I read this out with cantillation, uh, especially for example the European cantillation, it's very um, it's very um, as if it's got a little bit of a beat to it, and it's very um, what's the word I'm looking for? It doesn't it doesn't swerve too much. It's like really like you know, it's melotonic. What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Wow! Wow! English vocabulary leaking out of my ears. Yeah, and I can't uh, think of anything either. It's 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 very monotonic. Monotonic, I think the word is. Uh, that would be single sound. Uh, yeah, it, that's 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 it's basically like a beat with a very very single sound to it. And the the point is that the, these are things that used to, people used to chant and not necessarily sing them, but recite them in a, with it within a very very specific way. But the the point is that this is a song that he said put in put it in their mouth. Let, let them recite this song. They always remember it, so they'll know the danger. It's like it's like telling you what you can call as a prophetic past. It's 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 describing something as if it's in the past, but it's really in the future. Okay, and and by the way, you can't implement prophetic past on anything that you want. It has rules. Actually, once. Uh, read this uh, thing that someone put up where they were trying to argue about certain verses in the Tanakh. Oh, this is obviously prophetic past. It doesn't work like that. If you want a lesson in prophetic past, contact me. I can give you a lesson in prophetic past. It doesn't work like that. Prophetic past is basically the, the prophet is describing something which is clearly in the future, but he's describing as, it's, as if it's been completed. Because the time in biblical Hebrew is not the same timeline they use in, in, European, in European languages. Okay, it's not the same timeline. It doesn't work the same. 
I one of the big things I teach, for example, when I when I take students on for biblical Hebrew, is is uh, you know how does time work in the Tanakh, and it's a lesson that sometimes takes a while to sink in. It doesn't work the same way. So right. you know, An whatever you heard would be about latter days, right? Uh, not latter days. It's more to do with how sequence of things happen and how oh, they're okay. described. I, I can't really explain this on on the air because it's 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 like an hour and a half lesson by itself. But in any case, the the point is that it, they they need to know this and they recite as if it's already happened because it, it's it's more intimidating. Okay, he's making he's making a point here that that they need to know these things so they don't forget because we are people of history. You know why do I why why is my degree in history or well, part of my degree is in history because I understand this the the concept of knowing your history to understand your future. Amen. And and it's very very important to understand. They also very important to understand. This is a song that even scholars admit that was written prior to the first temple period. Oh, good. Okay. So 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 the, their timeline is either the time the, the scholars say the timeline is obviously either around the area of the judges. Or the first temple period, the, the early beginning of the first temple period. So you have to ask yourself a very simple question. This describes an enemy coming from a distance, like an eagle, and it destroys them, and, uh, and then God will have his revenge. This is clearly a form of prophecy as well. Mm-hmm. He's not just telling them the, the, the action and the reaction to their action, but he's also telling them what's going to happen. You know, this is actually telling them this is what's going to happen in the future. Which is used sometimes as an argument to prove that the, that the writers of the writer of the Torah knew the future and obviously had the power of prophecy. Well, and I've actually, yeah. Well, I, I was just going to say now, as far as the eagle goes, I'm not sure where where that would be considered prophetic, but I but I do understand the, what you're saying. Well, Assyrians, I mean, the Assyrians had an eagle as part of their symbol. If I'm not right. Mistaken. Well, he, he found him in a wilderness the, land, in a waste, in a howling desert. He surrounded him. He paid him regard. He guarded him like the pupil of his eye, like an eagle protecting his nest. It doesn't yeah, sound like the eagle is coming to judgment. No, but there's another place where it mentions an, an eagle attacking. It doesn't matter. One of the interesting things here is that very early writings had already spoken about the symbol of the eagle. As either a protective symbol or an offensive symbol, okay, and okay. it's very interesting that a lot of the enemies of Israel have used eagles as symbols. Oh yeah, as a matter of fact, okay. yeah. The Romans, the Nazi Party, and, and the even PLO. And, and even I'm reading this book I was telling you about earlier, but uh, during the Great Revolt back, I think it was 40 or 43 or something like that uh, CE, uh, the Jews actually captured uh, a a Roman eagle from uh, one of the Cassiuses who was ill-equipped to do what he was told to go do, and he went, tried to go and siege uh, Jerusalem, and uh, Israel actually captured the eagle. And capturing the eagle was a big oh, thing. Oh, yeah. People, uh, 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 the emperor's procreators committed suicide over stuff like that. Yeah, it, it, was, it, was, it, a, it was a symbol. This is, that's why the Romans put an eagle on top of the entrance of the temple, because it was the symbol of their sovereignty over Israel, over the Judeans, and this is why there were people who tried to get it down at night. There were like two or three people that I think two two people that went tried to take it down, and they were executed for it because this is the symbol of Rome. But what's very interesting is that you know a lot of the enemies of Israel have used the eagle as their symbol. But in any case, going you know we're not really going to deal with a lot with the Hebrew if we carry on like this. Yeah, but no, basically, keep going, keep going. 
basically, first of all, the first verse, he talks about the heavens and the earth. This is actually a term that's referred to as a merismus. It's basically... Uh, including the, the most, the most dominant elements and something to really, really include everything. So he's not really calling just to the heaven and the earth. He's actually calling to all the, all creation. And we find the term heaven and earth in many places. Like, for example, Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't just mean heaven and earth. It means all of creation. Uh, Abraham takes, you know, says, uh, I have raised my hand to the Elion, the, the creator of heaven and earth. Um, we have uh, in Isaiah, he says, actually something very similar to this. He just he just changes the uh, the verbs, um, but he says something very very similar. It really means the entire world. But some people also try to say that really the reason that Isaiah uses this is that he's invoking the song as well, the historical memory of the song of Moses. Because all the prophets knew that their prophecy is really a continuation of the prophecy of Moses. Because all they all they are there to do is really uh, enforce the Torah. This is why the book of Malachi ends with "Remember the the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded commanded him at Choreth." You know, they're really there just to reinforce the entire Torah. But uh, that's the main point. But there are other other things that happen. I'm actually reading a very interesting book about prophecy, uh, Israelite prophecy, and uh, the first chapter really deals with is can we find a phenomenon similar to the Israelite prophecy and the writer actually concludes that there isn't anything like it not even well, I wouldn't say not even close but there's nothing like it it is a unique phenomenon in the ancient Near East now, the Israelites really lived in, lived in the in ancient Near East but there are a lot of things that were kind of like their own you know, prophecy some of the law concepts um a lot of different things were, were basically in their own little world. And it's like that with all cultures. A lot of cultures mixed a lot of things together. The Israelites were kind of closed on certain things. It was, it's a very interesting element. Yeah, but which, in any yeah, case, they were, they were very closed. That's one of the reasons that Rome didn't like them. <laughs> but yes, well, so... The, the, but the Romans had a lot of respect to Jews uh, because the Jews were an old, uh, basically considered right. to be an ancient right. religion. Mm-hmm. And they had respect to ancient religions as long as these ancient religions did what they wanted to for them what they wanted those people to do was on a on a on a sovereignty level of of Rome controlling them. They didn't mind. We will control you as long as you don't rebel. We'll let you do whatever you want. Right. Just don't put any more eagles but, up on there. But the Romans, no. But there were certain things the Romans didn't really understand, and one of them was don't put eagles in our temple. Well, okay, that's, we uh, you know, one of these days, we're gonna, I'm gonna, you and I are going to have to do a discussion on that book I was reading because it's going to be part of your class. But let's get back to this because we've got about 20 minutes left before we go on free time. And I just want to talk about this rock and then these references to getting oil from the rock and, and honey from the boulders and, and, and uh, the fat of the kidney from the wheat. You know, these, why are these terms used? Why is he bringing up such imagery? First of all, the rock is obviously God. I mean, there's a thing called a synonymous parallel where um, you repeat the same thing just with a different word. So verse 4, for example, which is the first occurrence of the word tzul, it says that tzul tamim po'alo, paolo, mishpat, but then this parallel of it is el emuna ve'en avil tzadik ve'yashar So a tzul is a parallel of the word el. Okay? Why does he refer to God as tzul? It could be that Tzul was a protective place. Usually a Tzul can be a rock, but can also be a cleft, and therefore it's a protective place. Uh, Moses is put inside the Tzul 
and God puts the hand to cover him, and then God passes, and Moses is inside the tzul being protected. So Hatzul might actually be might actually mean the one who protects you. Because one of the elements in this entire song is that God is the protector of Israel. He is Amen. He is the father of Israel. He is the protector of Israel. But by the way, the word tzul, if I'm not mistaken, appears like something like seven times in the entire thing. So it's what's referred to as a leading word. Now, uh, let's go to those verses where you have those questions. So, okay. by the way, I, I, I read some of the verses. It reminds me, like, for example... Uh, if you go to verse uh, 10, it reminds me of Ezekiel 16. It's either Ezekiel 16 or Ezekiel, one of them, which was the one where he talks about the the, the woman that he saves. I think it's 16. I, I can't ignore that because the element of finding in the desert and right. helping and building up and protecting, it just really reminds me of Ezekiel. Um, uh, four, 13, 14, 15. Okay, so for example, 13 says he... he Put him high on the Bamote Bamote Aretz, which is um, you know the high places of the land. Someone actually wants to ask me about why does certain things are referred to as the high places. Like for example, Israel is referred to as the land of Israel is referred to as Bamote Aretz, and it has to do Bamote Aretz is a high area. It's a mountain area, and one of the interesting things about the land of Israel is a big chunk of Israel uh, is actually a mountain region that stretches right. all the way from just below uh, Tiberias all the way to almost Be'er Sheva. So it kind of covers mo- most of the length of Israel. Uh, so it's the Tenuvot Sadai. Tenuvot Sadai is a Sadai is a is a, an old form of the word Sadeh. Um, some people think it's referred with a case ending, which is something that vanished in Hebrew but survived in poetic Hebrew. That's why poetic Hebrew is so important. It contains a lot of very very old elements of the language. Then he says, So. Why Sela and Tzul? It's a good question. Why does he mention the rock, the two words for a rock? Uh, first of all, some people want to actually say that uh, this is actually more has more of a realistic meaning. Some the argument is that some types of bees actually nest inside area, inside rocky areas, and that uh, olive trees can actually grow in a rocky area as well, which is by the way true because I've seen it with my own eyes. Uh, olive trees are amazing trees. You know, it's a, first of all, it's one of the most, it's a staple in this region. People, a lot of people ask me about wine and oil, and it's a staple. One of, actually, one of my professors wrote an entire book just on the subject of economy, uh, in the land of Israel from the 8th to the 6th century. And, uh, but we know as a fact that even, I think, like the second millennia BCE, maybe, maybe actually, no, earlier than that, um, let me just check something very, yeah. Uh, we're talking more around, you know, 3000 BC. Uh, olive trees and grape trees were, and, and vines were basically established in the sea region, and it boosted the economy like you wouldn't believe. So it's actually a staple. Um, and wine was something people drank. Yes, people also got drunk because of wine. Well, uh, you, so some, you had, something I wanted to ask about this. You, you mentioned it with rock. Now, with rock, it seems to be talking about that the image is something greater than just calling God a rock. It's calling him your protector, the one that sets you within mm-hmm. the cleft of the rock and shields you with his wing, as it says. Uh, so when we talk about honey from the boulder, <clears throat> it could be the bees. That's interesting. I like that idea. Oil from the flinty it, rock, you know, uh, you know, is there not you know, oil in the ground? And you know maybe this is literal as well, but maybe it's also no, talking figuratively it, as as the rock was. 
So first of all, there, there's basically, uh, first of all, they just discovered, or they discovered a while ago, but they just discovered here in Israel a type of uh, oil that appears in, in a certain rock formation, and they're talking that you can actually produce this into energy. However, I highly doubt if this is what it's talking about. Uh, if the if it's dvash and shemin, dvash is a food. This is a synonymous parallel. Shemin has to be food as well. So I don't think this is a, an oil that oh, okay. originates from the ground. Okay. However, taking taking the direction you were thinking about, um, it could be that fee- that he was feeding them from his own, from his miracles. Remember the manna, for example, right. was Tasted sweet like honey. as honey. Yep. Yep. Okay. And oil is a ba- is something which is very basic for food in general as well. You know, you dip your bread in, in oil. So you can t- make bread out of the manna that tastes like honey, and you can dip it in oil, which makes it more nourishing. And and would they not have pressed the oil, because they would not have been stationary, they would have been moving, wouldn't they have pressed the oil within uh, against flat rock? And yes, plenty that of rock was, is that, flat rock? Maybe, you know, so maybe this is olive oil then. So this is this is probably this could also be olive oil. Um, they're, they're, um, in places where they want to produce small quantities of olive oil, what they would have is it. <coughs> yeah, trouble. Sorry, um, they had a thing called a bodeda, which is uh, a bodida, which is uh, actually a mishneik term, but we don't really have another term for it. Which is basically a, a tall rock with a flat flat top. You crush the olive in the center, and then usually you have like a little thing that flows from it like a little um, vein canal, or a little yeah. uh, canal that's what it was canal thank you that would flow from wherever you crush and you can have like a really really small quantity of oil uh, and we actually when I was in a field trip with my one of my with my archaeology class we actually found one someone just sat down on one without noticing what it was and the archaeologist <laughs> had cut the guy up and said look at this this is amazing and the guy was like it's a rock he says no it isn't this is actually an instrument and he showed us, it was pretty, you know, you're standing there, and just looks over, and I looked closely, you could see the little, the little canal, and you could, and it's like, whoa, <laughs> and he's just sitting in the middle of a field. And he said, because people lived in this area, people sometimes had a tent here, and that was it, or this is, might have been something the workers were using when they were picking olive, uh, olives, olives from the trees oh, yeah. around them. Yeah, for their own uh, oil needs, yeah. Um, so... Yeah. Okay, so in the next verse, it talks about curds of cattle, milk of sheep. Uh, so everything seems to be very bountiful. So he led them. Uh, he did not do it with verse 12. Yehovah alone did lead them. Not with any other god did he lead them. Uh, so he had them mount a- on the high places. So he, he led them through provisions. And these are all listings of provisions. But some of them are interesting, like milk from lambs and rams. Um, no, so so it's not rams. It's chelav karim velim. It's not chalav. It's chelav. This is this is one of those places where I kind of stick it to people and say this is why you need the Masoretes. They preserved a pronunciation that differentiates two words which are spelled exactly the same that share a root but mean distinctly different things. And I can also throw in some of my academic material, but it doesn't really matter here. Uh, but these are words that are spelled exactly the same. They uh, probably do not really share a root. These are these are they're written graphically, written the same, but were probably pronounced differently. And even the, on the level, on the constant level, the constant was pronounced differently. And one is chalav or chalev, which means milk of, and chalev, which is fat of. But chalev, if you remember the recording we did on Leviticus, chalev 
doesn't necessarily just mean fat. Chelev means prime of something. So, right. for example, uh, I every year I put out this warning about fat that, for example, if you buy uh, a doner kebab, if you're English, or if you buy shawarma, um, usually there's a layer of fat on top that's tail fat that's actually forbidden. And I once got asked by a friend of mine, how what is, why does it mention that they're eating something which is forbidden? Now, I don't because this is a this is a a, a piece of poetry. This contains a lot of metaphors. It doesn't necessarily mean that it to- it's talking about allowing the fat of something which is forbidden, as it appears. I think it's Leviticus seven. What he's talking about is the prime of the of the rams, the prime of the of the of the flock. Okay, so that word prime for pieces is is was what now kelev. So chelev is fat or prime, and this is why we can also have chelev kiliot chita. He's talking about the prime of the wheat. Right, right, right. Okay. Uh, in the Shokin, it says, along with the kidney fat of the wheat, the blood of grapes, um, and the blood of grapes. No, it's just, this, so this, this is, is all, all metaphor. Prime. So way, not only is it provision, he's providing them with with the best. Uh, so they're not getting crumbs from his table. He's giving them the he, best. So, for example, Bnei Vashan, if you ever go to the area of the Bashan, that's the area where we raise cattle here in Israel. Mm. Not a lot, but some of the cattle there is pretty amazing. Um, you know, so he mentions here really prime, you know, milk, uh, butter of cow, milk of, 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 of livestock, of tzon. And tzon, by the way, is a general word. It means goats and sheep. If you've ever had a coffee with sheep milk, like whole sheep milk, it is mm. amazing. Yeah, yeah. One of the very and few cups of coffee too. that I've, yeah, the very, one of the very few cups of coffee I've actually drank. And a friend of mine made a little cup with some, and he, I drank it. It was amazing. Uh, but notice he uses, you know, for example, dam enav. The blood of the grape—that's that's a—that's what we refer to as a, an archaic term or a frozen term. Actually, appears in other places as well uh, in other texts from the ancient Near East. Very thankful for my dad that actually bought me as a gift. Uh, uh, about a year ago, he bought me uh, Cyrus uh, Gordon's uh, book that he published on the Ugaritic writings, and uh, it's just actually my dad got me in a first edition, which is. Pretty amazing, uh, you know, to, to, to my future Bible scholar, and you the. Uh, you. <laughs> but in any case, that was a perfect gift. My my, my dad saw me glowing, and I sat there for like an hour just flipping <laughs> nice. through the pages. Um, but the the point so, is, honey, that, there's something wrong with our son. <laughs> no, he's perfectly fine. Uh, but the the thing is that Damnelinav, the blood of the of the grape. This is this is archaic language. This is this is why it's a joy to teach this on the, on the Hebrew level because it contains so many interesting pieces, so many things you can point out well, to other texts. It's just amazing. Well, let me uh, let me let me take it to the next verse then. So you know he's saying that he's led them. Uh, he alone did lead them. Verse twelve. Uh, not with any foreign god did he lead them. Uh, then he tells about the he give he didn't just give them provision he gave them the best um, of of all the provision and then in verse fifteen we have this other word but Yeshurun grew fat and kicked you were fat you were gross you were gorged he forsook the God that made him and treated like a fool the rock of his deliverance so uh, who is this Yeshurun? So Yeshurun is a very rare poetic name for Israel. It actually comes from the root Yashal. Uh, remember that Yisrael has to do uh, the, the beginning Yasal 
really from the word saral, which is to to control or to govern over. But it's 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 basically the same name of Israel, but in a poetic form. It's quite common that you have a uh, a double name for something, where in the narrative it appears as one thing, and then in poetry it appears as another thing. So Yeshuon is actually just another name for Israel. It's very rare. It appears in the next parasha about Moses, when Moses gives the blessings, and it also appears in Isaiah forty forty four. Uh, note here forty four two. It's a rare name. If you wait for a second, I can maybe even find a little bit more information, but that's what I basically know about this name. Uh, it's like the name Yah. It's a poetic form of the name of God. You know, it, that's basically what it is. So the same, the same thing here. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me so, uh, look now this up. We the dictionary as well. Just as you're looking that up, we, we've we've seen other things like the rock is talking about the protection when it talks about uh, you know the the kidney fat of wheat. It's talking about the the best of uh, when he talks about Yeshrun. What is the image? What is he trying to say uh, about Israel? So uh, Israel Israel received all the blessings. Israel you know is is. Uh, multiplying is successful in the world and everything. It starts in Israel. Starts forgetting who gave him everything. Again, it reminds me of, of the chapter in Ezekiel, where I gave her everything and she turns away from me and thinks that everything is from other places. It's the same idea. It's the same concept. And basically, oh, yeah, says that Israel. That's an interesting comment. No, made, Ezekiel, Ezekiel, Ezekiel. I know, but in Hosea as well, uh, he talks about. Uh, uh, you, you you said that all of these blessings that you've gotten came from your lovers. You'd forgotten that they came from me. Mm, that's Ezekiel. Oh, is that Ezekiel? I thought that was Hosea. That's, that's, okay. Mm, oh, wait. No, Hosea. Could be. Could be. Uh, it, could he's be. talking to the same, you know, uh, adulterous woman. So, I mean, you know, Israel. Yeah. So. But here, here, here he actually talks to Israel just as in a masculine, you know, he is... You become fat and lazy, and and basically, you know, you're just turning around. He's, he he abandoned not only abandoned but spoke badly uh, of uh, of his of his uh, the rock of his salvation. I saved you from Egypt. I gave you all this. I took care of you, and now you're just becoming fat and lazy, and and just you know well, reminds you of, reminds you of a verse I think in Amos. Where he says, "Listen to me, the cows of, of Bashan." You know, it mentions it mentions the uh-huh. Bnei Bashan, and now he says that they're fat. They, they, I, th- I think I think the prophets were playing off of a lot of things from from this piece. Right. Well, uh, so so in in this one verse, I know that Moses didn't speak in verses, but uh, at the end of this sentence, he starts off with Yeshurun at the beginning, and then he says, "Treated like a fool." Now, I'm not sure if Shokin is taking liberties with that translation or not. But it, no, uh, they're 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 thinking they're translating naval in the sense of a fool, like we use, for example, in proverbs. But vainabel here is probably more to cuss or to speak badly of. Okay, so probably it's to curse the god, uh, the rock of your deliverance, or to um, um, remember it says am naval, so it plays off of the t- idea of being foolish. But here it's the same root, but it means something completely different. It means to speak badly of or to cu- or basically disrespect or even cuss. 
Yeah, in verse 18 he says, uh, The rock that birthed you, you neglected. You forgot the God that produced you in labor. Um, now, so this this is the rock that was their deliverance. This is the rock that was their their uh, their salvation, their protection, their their the wings uh, that provided them the best of all the things that they had. And now it's it's starting to change. The song is starting to to turn into a vengeful God, a jealous God. Mm-hmm. Now, 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 but the thing is that you have to remember that. Every time something like this is mentioned, there's also always a softening at the end. Ah. That the, that that what happens is is that. So once you're done take, with the song, there's a bit of a hope. There's a, the, usually there is a hope at the end. The tendency in the biblical text is to try to end with a, with something good or something which is hopeful. And, uh, and that that's a very very important strong element that appears here. But he he starts mentioning you know what what exactly is this sin. <clears throat> and he mentions that they, for example, um, um, they 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 slaughter sacrifices for these uh, pagan things, or they or they verse seventeen says is bechul shedim lo eloa, you know Elohim lo yedaum hadashim mikarov ba'u lo se'arum avotechem says they 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 slaughtered sacrifices to shedim, which ah, something in, in modern. Some yeah. people will try to say it's demons, but it really right. means spirits. But these are spirits which are not which are not gods, Eloah. So here, you know, these are Shadim which are not Eloah, they're not gods. So Elohim what, what is, gods which they, they have not known. But what what if, if spirits if spirits of some sort, something which does has no power. I mean, there there is this debate, um uh there is this opinion, sorry it's not a debate, there's opinion among scholars that there's a certain element of polytheistic thinking here. The acceptance of other, the existence of other gods, that that other gods do exist, but we only worship one god. Um, there is there is this idea that some scholars, uh, actually a very a very uh, prominent idea that a lot of scholars push, um, that um, that uh, you know the Israel developed from being pagan to. Polytheistic to Henoism to monotheism, and then extreme monotheism really appears at the end of the first temple, beginning of the second temple. That, that was the, I, the assumptions, yeah. Yeah, I see it. I agree with it to some degree, but in a completely different way. I think it was the other way around. Yeah, that, they were supposed to be monotheistic the whole time, but they weren't. And that's what they get exactly, in trouble for. <laughs> exactly. That that they started off as completely monotheistic, maybe monotheistic with borrowing terminology from the surrounding environment, but clearly monotheistic. And in time they became more Heno uh, started believing in Henoism, which is which is a belief in one God, worshipping only one God, but the acceptance of the of the possibility of other gods existing. And then uh, polytheism, where you worship more than one god, and then you can have paganism, which is you know worshiping a whole variety of gods with idols, etc. No, right. no supreme god, or but maybe a, some kind of supreme god. But but to 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 define this a little bit differently, when we're talking about 
uh, the pagan worlds or the pagan lands when they interact with God or interact with uh, you know any of the angel or the you know the, the sent ones, then they're going to call him God. They're going to because it's a mighty one. That's what the term God technically means: a mighty one, not the mighty one, Eloah Elohim, but just an Elohim. Uh, it's actually my, maybe why it uses the form. First, Eloah is again poetic. It's a poetic form for Elohim. But it's also possible that he uses the word Eloah to make sure it's clear we're talking about saying that these are gods. That he's that they consider these spirits to be gods when they're not really anything. They right. don't have any real power. Right. It, because realizing what's happening behind the curtain, they have no free will. They are only doing what they're told to do. All, all led by and all directed by one Eloah, Elohim. Mm-hmm. So, is there another way to look at this? Is that these these lashadim uh, are are because we're told we're not to commune with those who speak or who are familiar with the dead. So apparently there is some communication with with a with a person's neshama or excuse me nefesh uh, in in the grave or from the you know from the grave. And it's possible I'm assuming that these same could be treated as Elohim by the nations. And these are the slaughtered, that they're being slaughtered uh, or given offerings to. I, mean, I can see how that would, that would develop. So if, if there is such a thing as the ability to communicate with the dead, then is it possible that these demons, quote-unquote demons, are nothing more than just an extension of that reality? Well, first of all, in, a, in Akkadian, the term sedu or shedu, is basically a name that they use for demons, but uh, I don't I don't know if the same it's the same thing. It's possible that because they say it, the language of the sages and the, and the Akkadian they both use it the same way. And it's possible that some Akkadian slipped into into the sage land. The, you know the, the language the sages use. I, I can't really trust that one. But you know, I once made the argument that what people think are demons are basically spirits that kind of stuck here. That there aren't demons. There are just Spirits that frightened people, and they thought these were demons. Now we well, so, okay. We've kind of opened a can of worms here, and it's a, it's, it's a fine it's a fine can to open up. <clears throat> now, when we talk about uh, the little kid that sees dead people, I think that's a possibility. You're talking about that movie? Yeah, I see. Dead with the people. with the with the weird twist in the end? Yeah, yeah, that was a that was a g- really interesting movie. I really enjoyed that movie. Uh, Bruce Willis in general, but that was a good movie. Um, but anyhow, the uh, <laughs> anyhow, moving on. I think we should do a program about movies where we just talk about movies. And yeah, right. Say what we think. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, if if there is a commandment against communing or, or having fellowship with those who do commune with the dead, then the dead can be communicated with. We see an example of it in the, in, in, um, the Chronicles. Samuel. In Samuel, excuse me, yes. So, you know, obviously there's something there. So if these spirits can be awakened, can they... Stay awake, not awake as far as return to a body because they have no body to return to. So now we have this question of limbo. I'm sure there are books written about this and lots and lots of conjecture. But what are your thoughts? I mean, is it possible that these spirits that can be awakened um, can roam around uh, awake when they're not supposed to be? I'll tell you a story and you can conclude whatever you want to conclude. My parents were born in England. And 
when my parents were dating, they, um, actually when my mother was growing up and then she started also dating my dad, they lived, um, my mother and her family were living in a house that they recorded strange things happening. Sure, sure. And and by the way, in my mother's side of the family, they're all perfectly sane. <laughs> okay, they're these are these are very down to earth people. There were several admirals in my mother's family, people of very very high stature. They, these were not you know peasants who believed in mumbo jumbo. These were people who were very very serious. Yeah, my grandfather of stature. Okay, my my grandfather was a paratrooper in the British military. He actually. Was a uh, he was actually shot down over Japan and lived for three and a half years in a in a camp, a Japanese camp. Um, you know, my my aunt actually met the Japanese people who helped him when he was liberated. Um, and when she yeah, she actually went to Japan and she went to the thing and she said, "I'm the daughter of so and so." They lit up because they remembered oh. him. And they actually pulled out this box with a picture and uh, some drawings that he made and everything. And uh, you know, my my aunt has all the all the stuff. And I actually once asked her if I can, you know, take a couple of my grandfather's drawings because one of the things he used, to, he used to draw in the camp to keep himself sane. And he never really spoke. He only like when he re- reached something mid sixties when he realized he was getting old, he started telling stories. And it's recorded. There's a, there was an organization that actually came to his house and recorded everything, everything he saw. Oh, wow. <clears throat> and uh, asked questions and everything. And, uh, you know, and I, could, I, I never understood why he never liked loud noises <laughs> until, I dis- until I discovered that. Right. Uh, but in any case, in any case, the, uh, the thing that happened there was that they lived in this house and they, could see someone passing next to the kitchen window and they could hear footsteps in the in in the uh, inside the house and knocking and it wasn't anything there was nothing there and I remember my mother said that the first time she saw the image passing next to the window she literally freaked oh, I'm, I can imagine I'd be like honey we got to move now <laughs> yeah but but the thing is the thing is that I believe my mother oh absolutely no, I, I think she's saying the truth I think that there is this possibility of spirits of people because I believe there is an afterlife I just, I just don't really accept the whole heaven and hell thing but I believe that there's a spiritual element in our in our bodies that makes us who we are that carries the memories of who we are, that basically is us. Yeah. And it's sent away, and sometimes, for some reason, they don't get there, or they get sent back here. It might be also a form of, of punishment. I don't know. Well, I have no, I, I have no that, way of knowing. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think as far as what little we have in the text about it, it seems to be that somebody can awaken you. I mean, if 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 we believe the the you know account in Samuel. Then you know Samuel says, "Why have you awakened me before the day?" If if that's to be believed, then I'm not going to go so far as to say that you know, you don't make it where you're supposed to go, or or you're sent somewhere here as punishment. I, I think it's 
as far as what the text is saying, somebody can awaken you, some ne'er-do-well or somebody who thinks they, they know what they're doing, who actually you know, waken you and you can't get back to sleep, you can't get back to the, 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 the place of rest you're supposed to be in. I would assume that if that's possible, that that would be a very, very you know, um, non-enjoyable life or, or well, sleep if somebody well, awakens you and, can't, and you can't get back to your, your bed. Well, look at Samuel. What does he say to him? Lamer gazdani laaloteni. Your your ragaz is is to make someone can mean to make someone angry, to shake someone. It sounds as if he's very upset with the fact that he woke him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and if that's to be believed, and I know this is a little bit off of where we were in the in in the portion, but you know it it just where these demons come from. Is it possible that it could be people who have been awakened, and you know that's that's who they're offering uh, to because it seems like that people were were calling upon the dead because they were to gain some type of information about the future and that was what uh, all the romans were doing that's what all the you know that's what all the pagans were doing they were contacting the dead to see what was going to happen in the future so you know slaughtering to demons and, and slaughtering to these things it's not demons as far as satan's you know emissaries it's it, as far as what we have allowed in the text, it's very possible that it could be just uh, religions and, and, and faiths built up around dead people. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So anyhow, uh, it, as the song con- uh, continues to close, he gets into the punishment phase. He's you know drained by famine, deprived by food, by fiery plague, bitter pestilence, the teeth of beasts sent out against you, the hot venom of crawlers in the dust. You know, uh, the sword bereaves outside, terror inside. Uh, that this that this judgment is. This is this is a song they're supposed to sing, and they're supposed to remember. And this is a very very hard song to sing. That because of their idolatry, because of their what they've done, he, they've brought this upon them. Mm-hmm. So in and in, in the in the poetic side, in the poetry side, is it still is it still in the same format? Uh, the the parallel yeah, format. There was uh, some things are in parallel, some things are not, but most of it is actually in parallel. I mean, it's, the entire thing is one long song, and it kind of keeps true to the uh, to not only the rhythm, but it also keeps true to to the concept of using parallels. So it's it's quite consistent this entire song. So we can call it pure song. It doesn't really veer that much from. From, from what it's trying to do. Sure. So when we get into these plagues, into these judgments, um, how are we? How how is it set up? I mean, I'm looking at my Hamash. I'm, I'm re- I can see the uh, the divisions, the way they're set up, but it doesn't seem to be any parallel. It's just you know bad and bad, bad and worse. Bad and worse. Basically, a, a gradual build up. It's another mechanism. You use a gradual build-up. You start from something low, and you go build up more and more and worse and worse, or better and better, depending on what you're trying to say. Wow. So Yeah, it's just a hard song. Um, it's a hard song, uh, but it's an important song to know. It is, it is literally the history of the, Jew- of the Israelite people, the Jewish people, in a song. Absolutely. So, you know, is there anything... That we, we probably should bring out towards the end of the song to get as we close out the portion, say something nice for the people to build up hope. So, so the, why don't we talk about the, thing, the hope? So the thing is that God basically, because He is the God of creation, He c- controls everything. At one point, you know, God says, "They abandoned me, so I'm going to abandon them." 
But then God says, for my name's sake, I will, I will turn back to them because the nations start forgetting who I am. This is, this is the, this is the astounding thing about, you know, all the people coming or returning to Torah. People from all over the world are interested in Torah in different ways, but the point is they're all interested. It's, it's fixing something that went wrong a very, very long time ago. And, and God is saying, for my name's sake, I'm going to tell them and show them who I really am. And it's, it's basically God says, because the nations are saying that their gods are the ones succeeding and their gods are the ones of truth, God is going to say, no, no, up to here. That, that's it. You know, I am punishing my people for their behavior, but if you're going to cross that line, then you're going to start giving the credit to something which is false. I'm going to step in and change everything. Oh, that's the and golden then, calf. Th- but then he says something kind of interesting. He says, I want to bring down revenge on them. Mm. He asks a question, why revenge? I mean, he was, he's the one that allowed them to attack Israel. Why is he putting vengeance? And I think the answer really comes from uh, one of the prophets. I can't remember exactly who it was, but he says, I told them to punish, and they, I think it's Jeremiah, at the end yeah, of Jeremiah, yeah, he mentioned too far. I, they took it too far. You know, I allowed you to conquer Israel, allowed you to control them, but you took it too far. Yeah, and, you and, kicked and them and while they where, were down. And that's where God says, that's it. There's judgment, and just being plain mean. He says, what you're doing is not judgment, you're just being mean. You're not following justice. They're beaten, they're down. Now you're also going to shoot them in the head? Right. So it in it's it starts closing out. Uh, let's see, verse thirty nine. See see now that I I am He. This there is one is no of my God favorite verses. Me. I myself bring death, bestow life. I wound, I myself heal, and there is from my hand no rescuing. I love no, that it's, verse. It's, it's one of my favorite verses. <laughs> It's, it's extremely powerful. It says, I, I crush and I heal. I once had this argument with someone who says, why does God kill people? And I said, he can kill and he can bring them back to life. Amen. You're, think, you're thinking in a very, very narrow, in a very one plain way of thinking. I am, I am so happy you use those words. I, I think that is the very core God can bring death, but he can also bring back to life. And that's, I think that's the underlying a promise to us obeying Torah, is he can bring back to life. Exactly. That, that's the thing. Israel was in a diaspora. And when I use the term Israel, I mean Israel in the broader sense. And now he crushed. He made them pagans. He made them worship idols. And now he's bringing them back. I I am gonna I am gonna heal my people from 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 where they're at. Mm, and, and this is this is this is this is the powerful message. I love this verse. Well, I love you, this you verse. have this to love forty three as well. Uh, shout for joy, O nations, over his people, <clears throat> for the blood of his servant will he will avenge. Vengeance, he will, uh, uh, he will return upon his foes, affecting atonement for the soil of his people. Ah, this is shout for joy, O nations, over his people. That's not shout for joy, O Israel. Shout for joy, nations, 
because of the people, because of his servants. I, I, I just love these verses. It's, it's, it's a very, I actually have a, I have a friend that has that verse printed out. Um, he has it in his living room, um, on the living room wall. I actually started talking to my wife that we need to decorate the house with some verses. <laughs> she said, oh yeah, and we can buy this special parchment looking paper and then burn the ends. And I don't know, no burning the ends. We're just going to yeah. print it out and put it on the thing. There you go. But the, the point is, the point is that, yeah, there's a, there's a, it's a very, 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 the ending is extremely powerful. You know, this is verse 40. God takes an oath by his own name as I live forever. I will sharpen the, the, the brightness of my sword and my hand will grasp justice. I will bring, I will return revenge to my enemies. I will pay my my the ones who hate me. I would make my arrows drunk of blood. My soul will eat flesh. Because of the blood of 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 um, fall, fallen ones and and captive. From from from. Uh, how do you translate from the head of from the, from the heads of, of enemies yeah it's, it's, it's like God says it's like that moment where God has puts his foot down and says yeah that's it yeah I'm done up to here this is I, now, I'm up to here now I'm, now I'm putting down my revenge that's such a Jewish thing to say and, up and, to here well the yeah, but the thing the thing is when you go, when your history is full of murder and being yeah. persecuted and everything you hear something that's like hallelujah, bring it, yeah. bring it on now, bring it down now, do it now. You know, it's, it's, well, it's, now, verse 43, he goes on, he says, now, he talks to the nations, he says, shout for joy over his people, because, because he's going to do this. He, you know, it sounds, this is horrible, I mean, he's going to sharpen his lightning sword, his hand is going to seize judgment, he's going to return vengeance, his arrow is going to be drunk with blood, his sword devours flesh. And 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 then he goes shout for joy, <laughs> you guys, because I'm going to do it to you. Is it is it? Could it be read that uh, shout for joy, O nations, because you're going to be free from these same people, uh, that you're going to be released from these same people. You're going to have your deliverance as well. Is that something maybe? Um, it it could be. I mean, this is this is kind of like funny. Why do they have to shout for joy over Israel? That that's a there, there, there are several versions of this, or certain interpretations of what this means. Um, you know, some people think that maybe Amor is actually Israel. A different interpretation, because I think there are also other versions of this in other manuscripts. There, are, there are slightly different versions of what the verse says. There, there actually are places where the where the ma- other manuscripts disagree with the Masoretic text, and and some some places are really completely different. I didn't really hide, highlight them uh, throughout the throughout the the talk, but there are some places where it's quite significant the difference, and it's it's hmm. pretty serious. Well, so it, it's it makes sense that it's talking about the nations, uh, but the shout for joy may not be necessarily joy. Uh, maybe it's because uh, shout for fear, shout shout in dread. No, Ranan, Ranan, the root Ranan is usually something more joyful. Okay, so well. 
Um, so then it really was the question of who it's talking to. But it seems like in the context it's talking about the nations. Yeah, the context seems to be the nations, yes, when you look at it. Hmm. Okay, well, it's still just wonderful. Uh, I, and I still wonder if maybe the nations will shout for joy because because uh, God will have finally blessed his people. And maybe there's a lot of people out there who actually are waiting for that. Maybe the ones who aren't are the ones who are actually going to be the ones who are going to be <laughs> making their offering for God. A terminal offering. Well, you know, there's a... Moses here is, is the final bit of it is, is Moses uh, speaking with God and God saying, you know, go look, uh, you're going to die here on this mountain. Uh, you're going to be gathered to your kinspeople, which uh, is a very interesting statement. As Aaron, your brother, died on, on Hill's Hill and was gathered to his kinspeople. Kol Hahal, which is, which is an interesting name. Kol Hahal? Kol Hahal. Kol Hahal. The mountain of the mountain. Hmm. Uh, oh, um, that's interesting. And uh, it says, because you broke faith with me, uh, you both, you broke faith with me in the midst of the children of Israel at the, mount, at the waters of Merivat Kadesh. So w- here we see uh, Moses has died or is dying and, and as Aaron has died. And we see something different here in the way they're termed as far as their death. It says, gathered to your kinspeople. This seems to be... It's, it's, it's a much more beautiful death. It's it's a death that um, um, people basically when someone dies a good death when someone dies a old age death a non violent death and and it's in a very respectful way um, usually appears with that term I mean there are a lot of terms in the Tanakh I mean I, I keep on finding articles. Um, um, and I actually just subscribed to a to a journal uh, that deals a lot with these things, and I'm uh, looking forward to getting the issues. And you know, the, a lot of these frozen terms, a lot of these concepts, and they really they actually have a a very very deep meaning. They're just not just words; they actually have a meaning. I, I just got a book about how the word peace is used throughout the Tanakh. Um, you know, the all the occurrences of the word and how he categorized them, what they mean. How, how justice is used, the word justice, how it's used, how the word wisdom is used. Uh, unfortunately, they were missing one of the books. I actually ordered a book about uh, the relationship between children, parents and children, um, but uh, they ran out. People were just bored it like crazy. Well, <laughs> well let, me ask, let me ask on that then, uh, because I also think that gathered to his kinspeople has a meaning to it that's greater than just, you know, that he died. Uh I'm of the impression that gathered to his kinspeople is something that is significant of your position within the covenant, as opposed to somebody who is karev, as opposed well, to somebody who's cut off. Uh, they are well, not gathered no, ka, to their but kinspeople. Karev is the exact opposite of Nesaf Elamav. Aha. It's a violent death. It's a death with no honor. It's a death with a lot of shame to it. I actually... I actually uh, Argue that karet is is a is a death with no continuation in the mm. sense that the person dies with no children. The person dies a violent death. Uh, or you know. could it be as as I keep making re- references that, to that that you do not have that uh, opportunity of life again. That you know because God is a God who can kill and also revive. 
And if 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 it is true, and it, it, we both have some opinions on it both ways, uh, that that the obedience and adherence and and our love and our obedience to God, those are all things that that affect our opportunity to have life again. And those who are karev, those who are cut off, those who are dishonored. Karev, it's for the T at the end. Karev, excuse me, pardon. Uh, pardon. Uh, uh, that, uh, that they are not uh, part of that opportunity to have life again in this creation. Because everything about this creation, everything about life in this creation again is about to live in Eden again. And that's, that's the only thing I can, it, it, it points to in my well, mind. So well, I think we, spoke in, about, we spoke about this before. I mean, the point is, um, actually finish your sentence and then I'll... I'll well, I was just saying that here we see that Moses uh, was gathered to its kinspeople, and we see this as a beautiful term of, of inclusion, and I would assume inclusion into the covenant, as opposed to karet, uh, those that is not inclusive, uh, that you are outside of the covenant in death. Not that you won't ever be see God again, but as far as what the covenant is concerning, you're, you're cut off from that. So the thing is, remember that nichrat is usually, in many cases, appears with nichrat me'amav, or me'a so it stands as if like a, an exact opposite of Ne'esaf Elamav. That he is collected from his, to his people, and the other one is being cut off from his people. So they're actually two opposing terms. Mm-hmm. One is a violent, problematic, painful, whatever death it might be with no continuation. Well, Ne'esaf Elamav is, the, as you said, inclusion. He's added. He is part of it. He is together with everyone. So there are two, two opposite terms, two, but these are terms. These are not just ideas or ways of expressing. These are terms, karet versus ne'esaf. So if the valley of dry bones, uh, those who are gathered with his people are the ones who are raised up, then the ones who are left in the dust are those who are cut off, maybe. Just the thought in my head. Could be. Again, the, the whole issue of valley of dry bones. Right, right, the, right. If it actually happens. I know, I know, I know. Don't bring out your spiritualism. I'm in contextualist mode. Okay. So uh, anything else you want to bring out about the portion today? And listen, I want to tell you, thank you very much for all the Hebrew you brought up today. I know people are going to be really stoked to hear this. (laughs) I I think it's enough. Well, those are good days to have. Baruch Hashem. Okay. Well, then, if that's it, then I want to thank you again, Yoel. And shalom, everybody. Shalom, Aleichem. We'll see you soon. Hold on.